The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Scripture reading today be a gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Nobed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotam, and Jotam, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that every single part of it is inspired by you for our good, for your glory. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this part of your word, uh, you would make it clear to us. Please help me, Lord, to teach this faithfully, clearly. Please give me the voice I need to make it through. And we pray that as we look at this text together, that you would preach a better word than I can, that would hit each one of us in our heart and our minds so that we might Trust you, trust Jesus in new and deeper ways, and be changed by him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wanted to know, since it's Christmas, what you're celebrating this Christmas. What are you celebrating? Some are celebrating family. Anybody excited to spend time with your people? Get some time off. Spend time with people you love. Some are celebrating gifts. It's kind of fun to give or get something fascinating or something needed. Some are celebrating, should we call it sentimentality? Come on, don't you like the lights in the neighborhood, the decorations, the Christmas cookies, the songs or the memories? And I want to start by saying I'm not against any of those things, and to some extent I'm going to celebrate all of them with you. But are any of these things enough to thrill your heart? Are any of these things enough to last? Are they solid for joy, for celebration? 
We know they're not, and some of us are feeling this acutely even today. Christmas can be depressing, can it? Due to broken relationships, troubles in family, uh, gifts. Hey, those can just make you frantic, let you down. Every year we Americans go into debt for next year's garage sales. And the kids, is it, is it ever quite enough? Somehow the happiness eludes us. Sentimentality, the Christmas spirit, without truth, that's just, you get cynical. It's not real. I want something real and lasting and beautiful to celebrate at Christmas. And so to find that, we're going to spend a couple of weeks, uh, we're calling our little mini-series here, Christmas with a Jewish Tax Collector. And so his name's Matthew, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and he's Jewish, and he was a tax collector. He grew up as a first century Jew, which meant he was religious, Uh, he believed in the one true God of the Bible, he believed this God made promises to his people, and those promises are found in the scriptures, which are his word. But he was also a tax collector, and that means he has a past, he has regrets, he was a betrayer. He abandoned his people to partner with a tyrannical government for the sake of money, pleasure. He he extorted his neighborhood for Rome. He abandoned the creed of his religion. He left the God he grew up knowing about. By the time he writes what we're reading, he's found something new, hasn't he? He's been revolutionized. The scars of his past are healed through the fulfillment of of the religion he left and later returned to. And he wants to give us what he has. And I think in here is the best thing, obviously, we could celebrate this Christmas. So he's gonna start like a Jewish tax collector would. How would you start the most important work of your life about Jesus? Well, obviously, you would use a genealogy. How many of you think, man, if this is your big work about Jesus, can we talk, you know, the PR people are calling in We don't think this is the best way to start. But Matthew's a religious Jew. He says, no, it's exactly the right way to start. And his context would understand what he means and why he starts like this. So how many of you, uh, when you try to read the Bible, genealogies are rough sledding for you, right? They're like a road mine. You're reading the Bible, you're doing well, boom, it's hard. Um, Well... Okay, but it makes a lot of sense for Matthew's Jewish context, and so I just, you know, get your Indiana Jones hat on, pretend like you're an archaeologist exploring the past to make amazing discoveries. That's what we want to do together. We're going to see three amazing things to celebrate, and they're all about Jesus, God's faithfulness in Jesus, God's mercy in Jesus, and the hope God gives us in Jesus. Let's start with verse 1, God's faithfulness. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I love this verse so much. Have you ever had questions about how to read the Bible? You don't know how this thing works together. You got 66 books, however many authors, however many languages, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It feels like a library of ancient history. Matthew is saying you can't understand Jesus unless you understand what went before him. But Matthew is also saying, you can't understand what went before him unless you understand Jesus. Matthew is saying in this one sentence, Jesus is the one who ties the entire Bible together. 
So yes, the Bible was written by real human beings with a real purpose and a real language and a real culture for a real reason. But it's also written by a divine author. It's not just 66 books. It's one book. It's one story with a beginning, with a, with a crisis, with a tension, with a fulfillment. And Matthew's saying Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Jesus is the one of whom it is about. So let's do this just for a minute. Let's remember the storyline of the Bible. And let's see how Jesus fits in or how we fit into Jesus' story. Uh, what's scene one of the Bible? You start, you start good. If you notice, pretty much every movie starts this way. You start a little bit happy. You start with creation. You get a good God, makes a wonderful world, good people in his image made to know and enjoy him in fellowship with one another. It starts out good. But very soon, scene two, what happens? It's the fall, right? Satan, this evil spiritual being, comes to tempt and he tempts in three major ways. Number one, he wants you to doubt that God is good. He wants you to doubt that God is satisfying. Number two, he wants you to doubt that God's word is true. You cannot trust this. And number three, if you do those first two things, you will replace God with something else, usually yourself. That's the temptation. God's not good, his word's not true. Replace him. And so that's what humanity did. We replaced him. And just as God said, that brought death. There's punitive death. We deserve just wrath and condemnation for our sin. But there's also like a consequential death. Cut yourself off from the source of life and goodness and love and joy. And what will there be? Corruption, destruction, decay. So that's our fall. There's creation, there's fall. But right there, right after the fall, really right in the midst of it, God makes a promise. Where's the first place you see the gospel in the Bible? actually want a sandwich on this once, a bet for lunch. Where's the first place you see the gospel? I don't know. Maybe it's in, it's in Genesis. It's in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. Look at Genesis 3.15 with me. It's mysterious, symbolic, but it makes a lot of sense of the Bible. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity. Here's God. God is speaking to, uh, to Satan that he is judging and cursing. He says to Satan, who came as a snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now unpack this with me real quick. God says, I will put what? What was that first word? Enmity. So there's, uh, we're enemies. We're not friends between these two groups of people. And then who are the two characters? Enmity between who? You and the woman. So who's the You. Satan, and who's the woman? Eve, okay? I'm gonna put enmity between you and the woman. But then this grows between your offspring and her offspring. Here's where it gets a little weird. Whose offspring? Satan's offspring. And uh, who's, who, uh, the other offspring? The woman's offspring. So you're wondering, are there a bunch of snake people walking around? Well, yeah, sort of. Of course, everybody biologically is the woman's offspring. But the offspring we're talking about here is of the heart. And so, really, we're all recovering snake people. How do you know you're a snake person? You believe him. What was his lie? God's not good. His word's not true. You should replace him with something else. That's the heart of what it means to be a snake person. And so the reverse then, this, the woman people are those who are Saved out of their snakeness, if you will. 
to believe by faith God is good. His word is true. We don't want to replace him. We want to love him and live for him. But the promise, as you see, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, it ends up being answered in a singular person. Did you see that at the end of 15? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the answer to destroying the snake and all his work is going to come in one singular he. He. So in other words, the one who's going to save and redeem us and bring us back to where we should be, fellowship with God and one another, salvation from our sins, life out of death, healing out of sickness, the one who's going to heal it all, well, that's just it. There's one, and he's coming. And that's in Genesis 3.15. You see the promise of his coming, which when I'm walking through this with people, I like to call the rest of the Old Testament promise. You can say a lot more, but that's, you can't say less, right? Creation, fall, promise, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. Well, how are we going to see the promise? Matthew ties Jesus to two of the most famous names in the Old Testament. You saw it, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's start with Abraham first. Why is he important? Well, it's through him and his family that we're going to get the one who's going to save us. Look at what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we're gonna look at one to three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will, make a great, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a what? A blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's blessing is his grace, his faithful grace, undeserved love to Abraham. And in that faithful grace, what's Abraham going to become? A family and even a nation. But as God blesses Abraham with grace, what's the point? Is it just for Abraham to sit alone by himself and enjoy it? No, it's to be a blessing to all nations. All sorts of people are going to know this blessing of God's grace. And with the context of what we already know in Genesis 3.15... How are all the nations going to know God's grace? Do you remember? The one. He will come. He will come. So it's going to be through Abraham and his family and the nation that comes from it that the one will come. The promise continues with David. David was uh, the second king of Israel. The first one was Saul, and he was a train wreck. And then God said, I want my own king. I want a king after my own heart, a king who will love me and rule with justice. David loved God, tried to rule with justice most of the time. And God made this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Look at this one, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. This is God speaking to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. And so you see God make the promise in Genesis 3. The one's going to come. He's going to save us. He's going to come through Abraham's family, and then he's going to come, now we see, through the Davidic dynasty. Do you see that? Son of David. Matthew says, son of Abraham. And this is so important because what happened very quickly after David? 
What happened to Israel? Were they wonderful nation blessers? Is that their legacy? Was the Davidic dynasty full of these godly, incredible leaders? Uh, did Israel bloom and flourish under the blessing of God? No, they failed. They failed horribly. The Davidic dynasty was known by more snake people than woman people. And soon Israel became not just, just like the nations, but worse, which is why in our genealogy you saw Matthew point out twice the exile and the deportation to Babylon. What was that? God's people were conquered by an enemy pagan nation and taken away in exile in, in just punishment for their sins and their idolatry. And there in that moment, do you realize it seemed like all God's promises were gone? It seemed like they were all over, all finished. Look at how the prophet Isaiah writes. This is what he writes in Isaiah 11, verses one to three. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now just pause there for a moment. Why is it the stump of Jesse? Well, dynasties were spoken of as large, powerful trees. And all the birds of the air would come and rest in their branches. That means the peoples of the nations would rest in the rule and reign of the dynasty. So if a dynasty is like a powerful tree and that dynasty ends, what's left? It got cut down. It's just a stump. It's hopeless. It's over. And what did he call the stump? It's the stump of Jesse. Who cares? Who's Jesse? The father of David. And what's going to grow out of this old broken down stump? A root's going to grow out of the stump of Jesse. And it's called the stump of Jesse because it's going to be a new David. A new David's going to come. Even though all our hopes and dreams have been chopped down. A new David's going to come. Again, Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. Look at this. There shall come forth from a, sh a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And here's, what do we see? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Do you hear what's coming? Even though all our hopes and dreams are burnt to a crisp and over, a, a stump is gonna, a, a root's gonna grow, and it's gonna be the one full of the spirit, full of love for the Lord, full of wisdom and understanding. Who is it? It's the promise of the one in Genesis 3. And so when Matthew starts his gospel, after 400 years of silence, in the midst of Israel being under Roman oppression, when he starts it by saying, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, what is he saying about Jesus? This is the one. This is the one told of in Genesis 3.15. This is the king who's gonna save his people with wisdom and justice. And this is the one who's gonna save his people by grace through faith. Do you, remember, do you remember what made Abraham right with God? Is it because he was always a wonderful husband? Those of us going through Genesis, we know, oh my goodness. He makes all of us look good as husbands. Was it because he never uh, disbelieved God's promises? No, he was very flawed. Did he have a real and genuine faith? Sure he did, and he showed that on many occasions. He's a flawed man, but look at, this is what God said in Genesis 15, 6. This is to and about Abraham. 
Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. What made Abraham righteous? Was it his good deeds, his perfect life? No. He believed God's promise. And what did God count to him, even though he did not have it in himself? An alien righteousness, not his own, that he was given by grace through faith. And so when Matthew says Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and you put it all together, he's the promised seed of the woman who's going to destroy the snake. He's going to reign as king, righteousness and justice, and he's going to save the people by grace through faith so that you trust in him. You can be saved from the death and domination of the snake. And somehow he's going to crush the snake's head as his heel is bruised. How would you put that together? How did our king get his heel bruised? On the cross. How can we call the cross a heel bruise? Because he rose from the dead. And through his cross and his resurrection from the dead, he crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed our ultimate enemy, our tempter. He crushed sin and death. And through him, by grace, through faith, we can be saved and brought into God's family. Isn't that awesome? Matthew just packed all that in, the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, into one line for you. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what do you have to celebrate in, in that idea? Well, a lot. Does God keep his promises? Does it ever seem like, from his people's perspective, he's forgotten his promises? Yes, it does. God, where are you? What's going to happen? We, you read through the Old Testament, you, you'll think that a thousand times. Is this even going to work? And in your own life, maybe you feel, you feel and think that way. God, are you around? Are your promises true? But as you read all of God's promises being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the ultimate David, the ultimate Abraham, you see God is deeply detailed, faithful, in keeping all of his promises, in working all the scars of history to find their culmination, in, in answering his promises better than we could have ever dreamed, the sending of his son. Trust God's promises and celebrate that you trust a faithful God, that he keeps his word and he sent his son in his amazing faithfulness. That's the first thing to see, celebrating God's faithfulness in sending Jesus. The second thing to see is God's mercy. Now, we're going to get into a genealogy, and uh, I plan on going about six or seven more hours because we're going to unpack every name. <laughs> I'm just kidding. By God's grace, I'm a little sick. I don't think I can pull that off. We're just going to look at some highlights. Why is the genealogy important? First century Jews were really intense about their genealogies. Why? Well, it was tied, number one, to who they are. How do you know you're in God's people? How do you know you're a child of Abraham? I know. I know all the way back. It was also tied to their land. They would get their inheritance. It was going to last legacies from generation to generation to come on a certain hill with, you know, this piece of land, this piece of property, and it's yours because of your genealogy, what tribe you belong to. So it was who they are. It was their land. More than that, it was tied to the priesthood as well. 
when the people of Israel came back from exile and they wanted to start up priests again, you had to be able to prove you were the tribe of Levi to be a priest. And they could do it because they had their genealogies. You'll notice as you read the New Testament, Paul knew his genealogy. He tells you right away in Philippians. I'm from Benjamin. Uh, Mary and Joseph know their genealogy. You read the famous Christmas story in Luke 2. Why do they have to go to Bethlehem? Because they're of the tribe of David. How do they know? They know their genealogy. Uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, said the genealogical records were extensive. They were tenacious about their genealogies. Let me ask you this. When is a genealogy especially important? It's when you're going to make a claim to be king. Only a Davidic king can be the Messiah. Only someone who can prove that they are in the line of David can be the seed from Genesis 3.15. We have to have a Davidic king, which is by both, why both Matthew and Luke give you different genealogies that take you there. There's some theories as to how they're different. Some say Luke focuses on Mary's line, the biological line for Jesus. Matthew here, we know, focuses on the royal legal line. Jesus was adopted, if you will, by Joseph, and legally, that counts. And so Jesus is related to David through this genealogy. You know what's so fascinating about this is after 70 AD, those genealogical records are gone. The Romans overtook Jerusalem, burnt the temple, and so ever since then, no one can make the claim to be the Messiah by relation to David. Isn't that fascinating? There's only one, folks. There's only one option for the Genesis 3.15 Messiah who's going to save his people from their sins and renew the world, and it's Jesus. So Matthew's saying Jesus is the king, but he's teaching us more than that. Did any of you notice, if you've read some Jewish genealogies, did anybody of you notice some names that might have stood out to you as strange? Well, most of the time in historic patriarchy, the ladies did not make it into the genealogies. And Matthew here very uh, intentionally selects several female names. Moreover, you'll notice that he kind of stylized this genealogy. Did you hear a part about 14, 14, 14, 14? Okay? So he's obviously being incredibly selective on who he's including. He's not including everyone. They could go to other documents to find all the nitty-gritty details. This is stylized make, for a point. He's making a, a point. So what's the point? Well, first of all, let's just look at some of these ladies. Do you see Tamar in verse 4? I can't even tell you about the story of Tamar because there's children in the room. Read Genesis 38. She faced some rough treatment from the men in her life. And she was conniving as well in order to survive. And isn't it amazing that a lady like that is Jesus' granny? You know, if Matthew's fake in this, you don't, you don't include these names. He doesn't have to include this name. Or verse 10, Rahab. You remember her career path? Canaanite prostitute comes from an awful culture, a dark lifestyle. Canaanite prostitute. She hears of Israel's God, turns in faith to follow him, risks her life to aid God's people. She spared the judgment, and she's Jesus' granny too. 
How about Ruth? You remember where she's from? It's Moab, isn't it? An idolatrous people, outsiders. They can't come and worship. She heard of God, Israel's God. She committed her life to following him. And she is literally David's granny. Then you get Uriah's wife. She doesn't get a name. You know her name. What's her name? Bathsheba. Why does Matthew put Uriah's wife? First of all, it's a, a Gentile's wife. Gentiles are in. Number two, uh, hey, David, that wasn't your wife. You know the story. It's a horrible story. It's David's terrible sin. Takes his friend's wife, murders people, commits adultery with her. There were horrible, horrible consequences in his life. But he repented. What did God do? God forgave him. Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. Bathsheba is Jesus' granny. Why is this important? It's so important. Because it shows us that Jesus came in and through a sinful world in order to save sinners and embrace the rejected. Jesus came in and through a sinful world in order to save sinners and embrace the rejected. And this is part of our author. He's a Jewish tax collector. You think it stood out to him as he was writing this genealogy that Tamar's in there? Rahab's in there? What's Matthew's story? He needs something like this in Jesus' genealogy just like we do. Matthew was a tax collector. He had, he had a past. He had horrible mistakes. He'd done evil deeds. He's worthy of God's wrath. But I want you to see the account of Jesus' story with Matthew. Look at Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. How do you think that landed in Matthew's ears when he knew? He knew, he knew, he knew he was guilty. He was rejected. There was no hope for him. He's a sinner. And then he heard Jesus say, I came for you. Alistair Begg once said, God deals with actual people, not ideal people. Is that the best news you've ever heard? He deals with actual people, not ideal people. He makes tax collectors his apostles. He makes sinners his friends. And all through his genealogy, the worst of the worst are in there. He's coming in and through 
a sinful world. A, he's coming in and through the broken mess to meet us where we are and take us to where he's going. So beautiful. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. Isn't it amazing there's something that cannot get, you know, there's this mysterious present. There's a way you cannot open it. You know how you cannot get the goodness of Jesus? If you don't think you need him. If you think you're good without him, you think you kept the rules, you think you're ethical, you're a good person, you're spiritual, you're fine. If you think you don't need Jesus, well, you don't get him. He didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. But if you're sitting here today and you know you've messed up and you broke it and you ruined it and you've got regrets and you haven't done it right, and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I've got no hope of being right with you without you doing this for me. I got no hope of fixing my life. I need a king. If you say, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Jesus would look you in the eye and say, I came for you. And his commitment to you is so great that he would come as a fetus, as an infant, as a child, in and through a messy family tree like this so that he could include you in his family tree. Unbelievable. God is faithful to his promises. You can celebrate that as you see Jesus and how he fulfills all of God's promises. And God is a God of mercy. As you see that the Lord Jesus came in and through the mess of sinful people in order to save them from their sins and bring them to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, number three, let's just... We'll skip the rest of the details. If you want to borrow some Bible dictionaries or something, you can do that. But let's go down to verse 17. Here Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now what are we supposed to do with this? Doesn't it seem a little too picture perfect? For a genealogy, 14, 14, and 14, and you got two sevens, two more sevens, two more sevens. Really? Is that how it went? Now, what would Matthew say to you? Of course it's not how it went. You're not very good at reading literature. What's he doing? He's being symbolic. He's making a point. And for a Jewish audience, they would love this. They would latch on real quick. So we need to try to find what he's saying. What's he saying? Well, there's a few theories, but I'll give you the one I think is most likely. A huge theme in this text and in Matthew's gospel is how Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the ultimate David. He's everything David wished he could have been better and better and more and more. He's the ultimate king. Now, you need to know that Jews had a system for turning names into numbers. You want to make a wild guess as to what number David's name would represent? Fourteen. Okay. David's name adds up to 14. And guess who's the 14th in line on this genealogy? David. 14, 14. And then if you're a cynic and you're counting my numbers, you're going, wait a second. The second set of 14 only has 13. I know. I saw it. Did Matthew just not know how to count? Did he turn in the, the, the final edit of the Bible? Oh, no. What do we do? Now, look at 17 again. 
All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from who? David did the deportation. He counts David twice. That adds it up. David, David's number one. He's number 14. He's also number one. 14, 14, 14. David's name is mentioned five times in this text. David, 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 David. What is Matthew saying to you? Jesus is the ultimate David. God has worked history to get you to the ultimate king. And it's meant to raise your expectations. One theory says Jesus is the seven sevens, because you got two sevens and one fourteen, another two sevens and another fourteen, another two sevens and the other fourteen, two, four, six, and then Jesus. The seven seven. It's a Jewish way, probably, to say he's everything. He's ultimate. He's the fulfillment. It all finds itself in him. It's supposed to raise your expectations so high about the kind of king that Jesus will be. Let me give you an example of this. Later, I think it's chapter four, Matthew will refer to Jesus going to certain cities, and then he'll say, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine. Let's go to Isaiah chapter nine just for a moment and look at what kind of king this is. Isaiah nine, six to seven. You've heard this before. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And look at this name. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That means Divine Helper. Mighty God. What's his name? God. Everlasting Father, he rules with benevolence and grace and wisdom and prince of what? Peace. And look what his kingdom will be like. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What kind of king is that? You've never seen a king or a president like that in this life, have you? And don't you long for this reign to begin? This is the king who died to end death. This is a king who rose so that you would rise as well. This is the king who will renew the earth that was created through him. This is that kind of a king. This is the kind of king who says, behold, I am making all things new. He's the merciful, faithful king, and he is our hope. Do you have a better hope than King Jesus reigning and one day returning and then renewing the world in righteousness, justice, and peace? That's where we're going because of, because of what Jesus did for us. That's our future. You probably heard it said, if you don't have Jesus, this life is as good as it's ever going to get. Maybe in your place in your life, you're like, oh, it's pretty good right now. And the rest of us would say, just wait longer. If you don't have Jesus, this life is as good as it will ever get. And you just stand before a holy God, and then there's going to be judgment. 
But if you do have Jesus, this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. It's as bad as it's ever going to get. Because you have this king, and he has you. He is the answer to all of God's promises. He's faithful. He's so faithful that he put aside his divine glory and became a human being. And lived a perfect life that you couldn't live so that his righteousness could be given to yours. He's so faithful that he died on a cross as a slave for all your sins so that he would pay the wrath that you and I deserve. He's so faithful that he rose from the dead and that all who trust in him will follow him. Forgiven of all their sins, adopted as children of God, members of his kingdom. He is God's faithfulness. He is God's mercy. He comes to broken, sinful people to save them. And he is God's king who is full of hope because he doesn't just save us. He renews our lives and he will take us to a renewed world, his kingdom forever. Somebody give me an amen on that. He's God's faithfulness to us. He's mercy to us. He's our hope for us. So let's live for him in our mess. You still got some mess in the corners, in the pockets, in the heart. Let's live for him in our mess. Celebrate Jesus this Christmas. Celebrate your family life for Jesus. Point your family to Jesus. Be an example of Jesus to your family. And if your relationships are painful and family is the last place you want to be or you don't have family to go to, well, let us know. You can hang with us. But also, if, if you've got nothing, we'll celebrate Jesus. You're in his family. You're in his family. This genealogy keeps going. It goes from past Jesus to Jesus into the future. It's called God's book of life. And if you trust Jesus, your name's in the book and you're in his family. And he's not ashamed to call you brother. Celebrate your gift giving for Jesus. Remember as you give the gifts what the real gift is. Don't get so hyped about next year's garage sale that you miss the gift that keeps on giving for all eternity. Maybe go lighter on some gifts in order to give needed gifts to others, but focus on Jesus. And maybe if nobody's given you a gift, if all your gifts are boring, Remember, you've been given the ultimate gift. You've been given Jesus. Isn't that good? Isn't that enough? Celebrate your family for Jesus. Celebrate your gift giving for Jesus. Celebrate your sentimentality in Jesus. You see those pretty lights? Why do we, why do we make lights? Who's the light of the world? Jesus. Peace on earth? I've had enough of that card, peace on earth, unless you finish it with because of Jesus, because of Jesus, he's peace. Life too hard for sentimentality? You say, I can't handle that right now, it's too dark, it's too hard to sing. Well, Jesus came in the midst of the darkness and he suffered for you. He knows. He's coming back to the, renew the world. Celebrate Jesus. Let's celebrate Jesus, church. He's God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and God's hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending us Jesus. And we pray that as we celebrate Christmas, we could be like Matthew who threw a party for all his friends so that they could hear about this great king, the Lord Jesus. 
Help all our friends to see Jesus in us and to hear his name, to hear what he has done. Lord, let our light shine because he has shown for us that, uh, that we might share this news of this great, wonderful king who's our faithfulness from you, uh, mercy from you, and hope forever. Pray all these things in his name. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.